Good morning, brothers and sisters of St. Thomas's. I'm grateful to be able to be here with you this morning and to sit under the authority of God's word. Um, please keep your Bibles open to James chapter 4, verse 13, and join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts are opened, we need your help today to hear your word and understand it. Please guide us and help us to look to you. We thank you for your son and for the fullness and sufficiency of his work for us. Please help us to apply your word to our lives and to be patient and steadfast in the faith. Amen. So, it's almost Christmas again. And hopefully a time of joy and celebration, sharing with loved ones the wonderful news that our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to save us and that each new day his gospel is being proclaimed throughout the world, reconciling people to God and bringing his glorious return ever closer. And reading James this week, I think to myself, what is going to compete with that incredible message this year? How is the world's hollow, superficial fabrication of this season going to play on my sinful nature as it presents its glitzy, jolly, catalogue family image where everyone is presentable and decent and the presents are thoughtful and useful and the whole thing is completely splendid and don't you know everybody's Christmas looks just like that except yours. You know what I need to hear today? I need to hear exactly what James has been saying throughout this series, that God is at work, not necessarily in the neat and polished, but amid trials, temptations, and uncertainties. In the trial of remaining charitable while navigating complicated family sensitivities, is at work when I hear about how another family has had yet another great and fulfilling year and how next year is going to be even better again. And envy is so tempting. But God reminds that his steady faithfulness and mercy has never failed. And he's at work in the uncertainty of not knowing how any of it is going to work. Whether any of those extended family that we pray for are going to respond to the gospel. I need to hear that God is at work refining my faith through that stuff, making me steadfast, completing work that he has started and that he is faithful to complete. And I need to hear that any alternatives that the world offers to doing those hard yards in God's providence, well, that's about as real those phony knockoff Christmases. You and I aren't the only ones who need to hear these sorts of things. In our passage this morning, James begins in chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, by speaking to Christians tempted by worldliness. They are Christians, but James points out that they are also in trouble, double trouble. Firstly, these Christians are in trouble because James says in verse 16, they are wanting to boast like the world. Christians can legitimately boast. Take, for example, the apostle Paul, who was a great boaster and had much to say about boasting. 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, he wrote in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He notes how he even boasted about the Corinthians, how God had done work among them to make them generous towards the mission of the gospel. Paul boasted about his own weakness as a means by which God might display his power and strength. And to the Galatians, Paul boasted in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world had died to him and he to the world. There is a godly boast, and it makes much of who God is and what he does. A boast that looks at God's handiwork and provision and says, look, see how God is good and true and his promises come to fulfillment yet again, his wonderful faithfulness. But here with these Christians, James is calling out the wrong type of boasting. This boasting has become so common and widespread that James is able to identify the people he is talking about simply by their speech. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Well, maybe it shocks us that James denounces this type of boasting. In verse 16, James goes on to say they boast in their arrogance. He calls it evil. Why is that? Well, it's not because planning is evil. The New Testament records many plans made and implemented to extend the gospel that brought glory to God. And it's not because commerce is evil. The New Testament gives records of several faithful men and women whose commercial interests served to extend the gospel in ways that brought glory to God. The problem is that we can engage in planning and commerce in a way that is arrogant and worldly. The world says money makes the world go round. But money can't do anything. What people really mean is we make the world go round. When you look around us at Christmas time and all the commercial emphasis on us making much of ourselves, it's easy for the humble nativity to get pushed to the periphery. Like everyone else, we're going to plan out our Christmases. We're going to budget for what we need to buy. We're going to allocate time for activities with family and friends. But what is God's plan this Christmas? God's big plan is not necessarily that we succeed in all our ventures, and he's not holding out on us when we don't. God's big plan is that throughout all of the significance and insignificance of our lives, he produces faith in him, in us. In God's big plan, it might just happen that a loved one receives sad news, or your children embarrass you in front of your family, a friend says an unkind word, an unexpected bill arrives, a neighbor rejects the hospitality. Someone nearby might get a better job, buy a new car, announce that they're renovating. For a moment, it will feel like worldliness wins. But a little more positive control and a little less interference from God would fix things. Have your plan. God has his. And he knows why it should work this way and not that. And the question is, which plan 
you align to. The one where your diligence leads God's compliance or the one where God's big mission leads your sub-mission. How might God be at work through that stuff we didn't plan? James identifies that the doubling of the trouble for tempted Christians is that worldliness brings about ignorance towards our minor roles in God's big plan. James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. If you're a Christian, none of that is bad news. Because the God of the universe who hung the stars and knows them all by name has come so low, so, so low and so close to us in Christ, declaring that the little mists that are our fragile lives are significant to him and that he's working through them. None of us can bring any more significance to our lives by asserting when and where we plan to go and how much we plan to achieve while we're there. In God's big plan, none of us can even guarantee that we will see Christmas this year. And so James's word to us, all of us who attempted towards worldliness, is that we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's not a mantra. It's not determinism. It's not superstitious manipulation of God's will. No, to Christians and only to Christians who know that God's will for them in Christ is good can it be said in hope and certainty, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do. And in him, in him alone, we will boast. And James says again to Christians that if we know that this is right and yet fail to do it, that for us is sin. Now, beginning at chapter 5, verse 1, James addresses a new group, this time those consumed by worldliness, a group who are not Christians. And we might wonder then how helpful this address is for the Christian recipients of this letter. Well, it's very helpful. First of all, to those who were tempted to consume a little worldliness, to try just a little autonomy from God for the sake of the peace and security of wealth and possessions, James can paint the picture of where such a path leads. The consuming worldliness only leads to being consumed by worldliness. James is also able to paint another picture to illustrate in detail the coming justice and relief that God is bringing to the righteous ones who are oppressed by worldliness. And lastly, and this is perhaps pertinent for us as Western Christians, he is able to prompt the rich believer to hear the dangers of wealth and so avoid them by using their means for God's glory. James presents a condemnation of the rich in three triplets. Each triplet consists of an aspect of ungodly wealth, the evidence against it, and the misery that will come from it. We're looking now at chapter 5, verses 2 to 3. The first way that wealth consumes people is through the hoarding of riches, the evidence of squandered, 
idle wealth accumulates until it develops an appetite of its own, which James pronounces will eat their flesh like fire. The misery of hoarding wealth is the inevitable despair of losing it and of having lost oneself in the process. There is no value in amassing valuables. God has not appointed gold for rust nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life, something they cannot be if they are held in perpetual reserve as monuments to self. To put this into perspective, it would be like a sprinter who's just received the baton in a relay only to fall to his knees and clutch onto the baton and say, yes, finally, it's mine for the keeping. Hoarding riches is equally ridiculous. What God has granted to us for temporary safekeeping is to be used and used well and wisely for sustaining us and our service to the gospel and beyond that, furthering the spread of the gospel elsewhere. Wealth serves God's big plan. The second way in which wealth consumes people is through injustice, verse 4. The evidence against this path is inescapable guilt. Anything gained unjustly has a way of testifying about itself, telling the truth of how it came to be here and not there. It cries out against the wrongdoer, even as the cries of those who have been wronged come before God. Woe to the one who has done wrong. God is not passive or absent. Those cries, James says, have reached the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. He is a warrior coming to wage war against evil and injustice. Wealth used justly is part of God's big plan. And lastly, James highlights extravagance, verse 5. The evidence against this path, James spells out, is a heart so bloated and fattened by greed for this life, constricted and squeezed of any room for God, that its only remaining appeal is as an object of God's wrath and judgment, characterized grimly as a day of slaughter. Come now, you rich, weep, and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And well did Jesus say, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Think about how poorly the rich valued themselves, that they estimate their worth by the limited and fleeting riches of this life rather than by God's offering of himself, the one who makes known the path of life, in whose presence there is fullness of joy, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Whereas the world promises so much and delivers so little, God has delivered infinitely in offering the life of his son to ransom sinners to himself, with the promise of a secure an unfading eternity with him. That's the inestimable worth of a life in God's eyes. 
God's will for Christians is that our lives are exceedingly rich, rich in faith, rich in knowing the goodness of God and our worth to him. We find in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 to 9, a prayer of wisdom we can pray to this effect. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It is a prayer of patience and steadfastness for God's people to live as God's people, trusting in his providence and care. And it is to God's people that James now turns, commending them to these things. Look with me now at chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. This is no idle patience. It is a farmer's patience. Unlike the arrogant merchants and their self-assured plans, the farmer waits and hopes, hoping for the rains which are beyond their control and waiting with purpose between those rains. And as each day passes after the early rains and the soils begin to dry, the farmer does not abandon the crop or fail to tend and weed and prune but patiently waits, steadfast, confident, and knowing that the late rains will come and the fruit will appear. In the same way, James appeals to Christians, urging them, urging us to establish their hearts in readiness and service to what God has promised to do, to fulfill what he himself has started. Be patient for the coming of the Lord. And specifically, do not grumble. Now we might ask, is this also a farming reference? Grumbling. I grew up on a farm. I was privy to my fair share of grumbling. James is talking about a type of grumbling that leads to judgment. James is warning Christians not to be like God's people Israel, who were brought forth by God out of the land of Egypt, redeemed for new life under God in the promised land, but who became impatient and began to grumble against, amongst themselves, against each other, and against God. The contents of their grumbling, questioning the character of God and his big plan for them. Was the destination worth the wait? Were they better off in the relative comfort of slavery in Egypt? Were they better off with worldliness? Instead of using their mouths to grumble, James commends Christians to use their mouths like the prophets, commending the truth of God to his people, speaking forth the goodness of his character, reminding of his faithfulness in the past, assuring the certainty of his promises. By both the content of their speech and their willingness to speak at personal cost, they have become blessed examples to us in suffering, holding out against worldliness, suffering under worldliness, persisting in hope in God's big plan. It's because of how they use their mouths, James says, that we have heard. 
of the steadfastness of Job and the purpose of the Lord. Now the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In the same way, we too have come to hear of God's compassion and mercy in the gospel by the faithful proclamation of Christians through the ages who have also become to us examples of how to establish our hearts and use our mouths to actively live for God as we patiently wait for Jesus to return. At Christmas, we will celebrate the wonderful news that God sent his son into the world to save sinners, just as he had promised. And here in James, we have heard how important it is that we live expectantly, knowing that the son is coming again, just as he has promised. It's helped for us to know that suffering of one kind or another is normal for the people of God. It's not a sign that things have gone wrong, but that they've gone normal. A life free of all such trials will never produce the depth and maturity that God longs to see in his people, and which we, in our better moments, know we so very much need. God is at work. This morning, as we approach the many joys and challenges of Christmas in our context, we are called to guard our hearts and our speech from desiring autonomy from God. While we are waiting, and especially if we are suffering, we can be tempted to doubt God's care or become suspicious of his character. We must accept the limitations that God has placed over our control of our lives and lean into his faithfulness. He has proven his love for us and the price he paid to save us. And he is good to deliver on his promises. Anything else is a cheap fabrication. We don't always know exactly how to say these things to ourselves or each other, and so God has kindly given us his own words. I have found Psalm 37 to be a rich example of speaking the truth in love, and even saying it out loud feels very uplifting. I would encourage you to try speaking this psalm to yourself or to each other, engaging your hearts your mouths. Please join me as I close in prayer with a few words from that psalm. Dear Heavenly Father, help us not to fret ourselves because of evildoers or be envious of wrongdoers. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Help us to trust in you and do good, to dwell with you and befriend your faithfulness. May we delight in you, and may you fill our hearts with desires according to your will. Teach us to commit our way to you, to trust you, knowing that you will act, that you will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday.